0: To see for yourselves one of the most amazing events.
1: What is this great experiment for me? Impervious to heat, impossible to move. Is it human or inhuman? Yes. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? <laughs> it's
0: time for the Beaky Blum podcast. Bye.
2: The Geeky Rummy Podcast Special All about one of the greatest people ever in the comics industry Mr. Stanley Joining me for this issue, Mr. Keith Bloomfield
1: It's a, I would love to say it was a pleasure no. Not quite as much of a pleasure as I would like To no. uh, be back on the show To kind of um, be marking the passing of a legendary comics figure. Yes, it's good to have you back
2: And behind the desk as always Mr. Callan Danes. All right. Mm. So, this month, when we're recording this, unfortunately, as I we mentioned, we've lost one of the greats of the comic book industry, Mr. Stanley, December 28th, 1922, through to November the 12th, 2018. It's quite a long life, especially in comics, considering he started comics in was 17, I believe, when he started his apprenticeship.
1: He was quite early on. I mean, he was, he's had a good innings, yeah. really, as a as a figure that people kind of... You know, you say the name Stanley and people instantly know who you mean. He's become an icon in the kind of like, you know, the mainstream lexicon of, of, of stuff. I don't think there's anybody else in comics whose name would be as identifiable amongst just the kind of general public. Mm-hmm. I think there's not a lot of other creators that you could say their name and people would instantly know who you're talking about
2: in more later years he's been known as the king of the cameo as well so every marvel film and quite a few of the films he has popped up along the way for a little cameo performance i think he's got one of the most recognizable faces in the comic book industry as
1: well and a very recognizable voice yes because um, i think i think ever before i saw him for in kind of like uh films his voice was also kind of synonymous with a lot of marvel stuff yeah. He, he, uh, in the kind of when I, my formative years, we had some not particularly great cartoons, but they were sold on this fantastic voice that introduced them, and his voice was amazing. So, what I thought we'd do first is just have a quick run through of his career and his time at Timely
2: Comics, then on through Atlas Publishing as it became, and then into Marvel Comics. So, just a little bit of background, and then we'll talk about what effect. Stan's had on our lives As we mentioned He started very early In his comics career Started at the age of 17 Working at Timely Comics It was him Joe Simon And Jack Kirby Another two Big names In the comic book industry Huge
1: Huge Hugely influential
2: People yes. But uh, Joe Simon And Jack Kirby Fell out with the publisher Very early on In the birth Of what became Marvel Comics So Stan At the age of 18 Became editor-in-chief Of this Organisation and it's a role that he pretty much held for three decades and onwards solo, except a little break during the Second World War. I mean, Marvel Comics, as it was back then, there was not much of a focus on superhero comics. There was three superheroes. So you had Namor, you had Captain America, and you had The Torch, which were pretty much established before Stan got into more of the creative writing side. He he wrote for these characters, but he didn't create these characters. But... um. Timely Publishing was known more for cowboys,
1: romance, and war stories at this time. It was what a lot of comics was about. Yeah. Kind of, there were were more... um,
2: It was at the very end of the golden age, really, of comics.
1: Yeah, quite a lot, kind of like, very, very much like the European kind of sensibility for comics. It was those kind of romance stories... Western's Westerns, huge, still kind of um, hugely popular as well. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of like much broader. So super- superheroes as a thing didn't really kind of exist. You've got the kind of pulp characters. Yeah. So you would got people like the Phantom and the Shadow and stuff kind of around. And you've got um, your cult characters like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and all that kind of stuff. And then you
2: got a few from DC like the Batman and Superman.
1: Coming directly out of those kind of pulp um, yeah. characters. But then, as was mentioned, Captain
2: America was pretty much their only major superhero at one point, and that was more due to the Second World War, and it was more about engaging with the troops overseas as well. I mean, a lot of comics got shipped out to for the troops to read. The the end of the Second World War. Marvel took a little bit of a downturn in the comics in- industry. As i said, the, f- the focus on superheroes completely disappeared. They actually stopped publishing all superhero comics altogether. more stopped, The Torch stopped, and Captain America stopped, and it became just this publishing house for, as you said, horror comics became a big revival then, and it was more teen... Teen-focused girl magazines. Yeah, you'd got some kind of like
1: medieval adventure type stuff. So the kind of prince valiant type style kind of things and stuff like that. Again, because I think that reflected a a lot of what was going on in kind of popular culture with cinema and stuff. Those kind of stories people were going for. Yeah,
2: so. We can skip over that and go into the Silver, Silver Age, which was the explosion of superheroes that we had. And Stan was pretty much at the forefront, creating and co-creating most of the superheroes that we have to this day. In to mention some of them: Spider-Man, Thor, The Fantastic Four, some of the biggest comic <laughs> comic creations to this. Pretty day. much every big name that you yeah. could do. I mean-, I mean, he didn't create them himself. And this is this is probably one thing that we should really mention. He had a fantastic team with him: Steve Ditko. Jack Kirby, John Romita Sr., Bill Everett, Joe Manley, Don Heck. Some of these are amazing creators. That he got to collaborate with on the creation of some of these characters
1: yeah because there was um a, a particular way they were kind of making comics back then and kind of marvel were uh, to a certain extent jumping on the coattails of DC in terms of the creation of the super, the superhero characters because DC kind of did preempt them with the creation of things like the Justice League mm-hmm. and the flash and yeah. all the variations of the, those flash characters and so it would be Jay Garrick and yeah. kind of all of that kind of stuff and a lot um, of them were in response to DC's creations it was yeah, and again, and kind of DC had set themselves up in this kind of much more fantastical environment. So all their all their place names were all made up. Yeah. So they kind of they didn't they didn't really reference or didn't have any kind of impact on the real world as people know it. But mm-hmm. th- that was the, that was the thing that Stan and his creators over at Marvel did was kind of bring all of that into the real world. Yeah. So kind of using um their environment. and so New York City plays a major role and you could say that it's kind of the biggest character in the Marvel Universe yeah. is the city that all of these heroes appear in. And
2: that was another thing, DC didn't really have a shared universe as such. Batman and Superman occasionally crossed over, but you didn't have the impact that you had with the Marvel comics. Yeah, they
1: weren't was- all living in the same world. No. People would know the Baxter building was there. Spider-Man yeah. would go past the Baxter building or um, Thor would be working in a hospital around the corner or whatever it is. So, And Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum was in... Yeah. Um, Greenwich Village and all that kind of stuff. So it could put things in... I remember when I was a kid, you'd often get the Marvel maps of the city yeah. that kind of positioned where all of these things would, that would be. And you kind of always imagine that if you'd go to New York when you were a kid, you'd be able to go and find the backs of the building or find the sanctuarium. That's one of the famous early Fantastic Four comics
2: where they had this... Kids might know these Dorley Kinnersley cutouts.
1: Cutaways, yeah. yeah.
2: cutaway, And you had a full cutaway of the backs of the building. This is how you learnt about them having a car. Yeah. You learned about all the, where the superhero outfits were kept.
1: Where the various labs were, kind of the observatory bits and pieces. Yeah, and it kind of it really grounded it and kind of made you kind of totally convinced that these things were, were real in, in a certain extent, which is quite interesting. But again, it's that Marvel way as well, because I think um, the, way they, the way they went about writing the stories is um, they would come up with ideas for plots between them. So yeah. the kind of thing would be is that um, Stan and um, Steve Ditko would come up with an idea and Steve would go away and he would draw the issue. With no dialogue yeah. whatsoever. And then Stan would come in and add the words based yeah. on the pictures that you were seeing. So it was a very collaborative process. There wasn't kind of like a writer who went, This is what happens and this is what they say, and then it goes on. It was this kind of the artist was doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the the storytelling that was going on. And then Stan would come and put his trademark spiel <laughs> and the kind of very word play that he would use, the kind of the whole introductions to um the stories and kind of like or the whole true believer and excelsior type stuff was mm-hmm. kind of forefront in that kind of um storytelling which is great and it kind of really pulled you in it was this come with us now true believers as we tell you the story of a uh, whatever it was that would um, be great
2: the other thing they had was the marvel ballpen which has kind of been lost in the comics industry you that's know? where you had all the creators shoved into a room together basically yeah because great place for creativity and cross-seeding and ideas to be passed back and forth
1: well yeah because um people like joe sinnet and and um Steve would be training up the next couple of artists that were coming up from under them, and they would these all got all these guys would be working together in the in the, in a big office and I think I do think that is lost a little bit with the fact that we've got creators on two different sides of the planet. Yeah. now and things are just sent by email and you haven't got you know there isn't physical artwork a lot of the times these days and i think there's something about that family that sense of family that came from the creators filtered down into the books and the, the use of the letters pages and the kind of Stan speaks um, yeah. yeah the the kind of f- the bullpen stings and stand soapbox and stuff where he's kind of very directly addressing the audience and telling them this is what i think this is what is happening this is what i'm interested in so it did feel very two way in terms of you people would write letters in and, yeah. and the whole kind of fun thing that, that there was you know when they started to have people write in and go oh no in issue 277 you said this and then but in issue 72 it was this and it was like yeah okay you've got the no prize <laughs> yeah. and inventing a thing like a no prize and going right if you can spot things that are wrong because you don't win anything you don't win anything but you, you, win win anything, but you get you get, the, you get the no prize and the whole kind of you know not worrying too much about the whole continuity of, of things but encouraging fans to write in and point stuff out and taking, taking that on board is quite it's very you know it oh, yeah. ve- feels like a family you kind of it, when you're in the Marvel family you're kind of very much part of you do feel part of it I and mean, that was one of Marvel's first things as
2: well with their continuity is to stop a comic and then move it along to a different comic but keep the numbering, which probably would have really confused people at the comic stands quite a lot.
1: But I think I don't know whether that like, would matter too much back then because you were kind of picking up your comics on the newsstand. Mm -hmm. so you might you might miss an issue or you might pick an issue up so i think the whole sense of most stories were self-contained as well in a certain way there might be one or two issues that would lead on Mm -hmm. so a couple of the earlier fantastic four books you'd have two or three part stories but there wouldn't be kind of major 17 part epics with a hundred different because sometimes it's fun when you go back and look in the back of an old marvel book and it's got the list of titles that are out in the same month yeah and there's not a lot you know, there's like one X-Men book or one... This was a problem they had pretty much throughout the 40s and
2: 50s. Uh, their publisher, Martin Goodman, made a deal with American Distribution. They collapsed. So then he had to go cap in hand to DC's publishers at the time and basically say to them, um, can can we have you to publish this for us? And that's what restricted Marvel then. They were allowed eight titles a month and that's when it became this Marvel thing of doing a bi-monthly title. So you'd have your characters six times a year rather than having them on a traditionally... M- What was at the time a traditional monthly publication, yeah?
1: And they used to do um, magazines as well. They used to do kind of magazine format bits and pieces, which is quite nice because that was where I first kind of discovered things like Howard the Duck and uh, Conan, which was interesting. But kind of thinking about the first time you read Marvel stories, what how how did you stumble into kind of Marvel books? Well, it actually started with me
2: with the X Men comic series that was on TV, the cartoon series. It was one of my favourite cartoon series as a child and I started picking up the X-Men comics. The cartoon did actually do a really deft job of highlighting some of the issues that the comics brought forward, but this is another thing, this is one of Stan's key characteristics in the 60s and 70s. He challenged the comics code authority quite a lot, was one of the first people to go, actually, we're going to put drugs and alcohol and abuse, terrible things into comics, and highlight how bad they are, and hopefully give a moral compass, and it was the ACA pretty much responded in return to that and actually accepted that but um x-men for me was always one of those comics which the the whole point of the comic is it's all about segregation and because people are different a lot of normal people shun them and the whole goes into the politics of why should different people be segregated should they be part of normal society or should they be with their own kind as the comics on? and it went into quite a lot of heavy civil rights Stuff and you could feel the echoes of Stan's upbringing himself. I mean, oh, yeah. he started off as a poor immigrant in New York City just in the tail of the, day, the Great Depression, mm. and it must not have been a nice place to be in there. I mean, his parents were immigrants, he was a second generation immigrant child himself, and at the same time, he'd, uh, he's Jewish, so Stanley Lieber and Jewish people were persecuted across the world at that time, and I don't think that's he He's always fought for the small person. He's always fought on the right of... Stan's comics have always been about just because you're different doesn't mean you're wrong. That was the other thing, another key thing within the superheroes, especially with the mutant titles as well because there'll be mutants with some mutation which you think might be a bit daft. Nine times out of ten in the comics, that would come in use at some point. And it was always just because you're slightly different and just because you think you're a
1: failure doesn't mean that you still can't make a difference. Because there's a lot of analogy in those Marvel books. Because being a slightly more mature reader, I didn't really kind of even know Marvel comics were in colour till quite late on. Because most of the books I would see in newsagents, if they were American imports, they were usually just... Uh, books that made it into comic shop into news agents because they were used as ballast yeah. in shipping. Yeah. So a lot of those would be kind of DC titles or they'd be kind of gold key titles. Yeah. Didn't, alf- didn't see an awful lot of Marvel stuff. What I did get was a lot of Marvel reprints in black and white. And kind of the first things that I was reading um, was a title called The Titans. Yeah. <laughs> which, which, if I remember, graphically looks exactly the same yeah. uh, t- font and text as the Teen Titans used later on. But these were kind of um landscape yeah. reprints of Fantastic Fours or Doctor Strange's or Captain America's. And they were really weird to read because you kind of um they kind of had like a four or five panels. So they were chopping pages in half and presenting completely representing the yeah. the story as a whole. But I remember being completely obsessed with all of these characters. Um, you know, the Fantastic Four particularly. Mm-hmm. I think the X Men that I was reading were kind of the pre um new x-men yeah. so it was just a core team um so they they were kind of these were reprints probably coming back from kind of mid 60s yeah uh, on so they they were quite old title but still all of those thor and the incredible hulk and all this stuff and it was just fantastic Um, I mean, it's a shame
2: as you mentioned about changing the art from portrait to landscape because I can imagine Steve Ditko was one of those people who always put an amazing splash page at the start of most of his uh, comics and he was known as the king of the splash page and it was kind of like, that might have been sport a little bit by
1: those landscapes. Possibly. I think what it it did do was give me a a great appreciation of the line work that goes into comics because obviously the colour's stripped away. Yeah. And at that time, uh, they were using a print process that kind of did, gave you a very limited color yeah. palette. So if, if you're kind of looking at the comics from the kind of 60s and 70s, completely different to what you would see if you look, go, well, look in a comic shop that's nowadays. That's
2: why they refused to do the Hulk. Well, the Hulk was grey originally, and that's but it was it change. was grey
1: because it was it was just the way they printed it, and yeah. it just ended up uh, it was like a print error. And then they changed it the to green, so it became more of this yeah standardised so color of this yeah. character. Yeah. And I I love the line work, and it, I think seeing Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby's artwork in in black and white just really shows how good they were mm-hmm. at presenting a very energetic and robust story it, you know it totally cinematic yeah. every panel packed power and emotion and and you know they were just wonderful 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 storytellers oh, yeah. and I think I've come to appreciate Steve Ditko more as time's gone on I think yeah. at the time the Jack Kirby stuff was much more the kind of Kirby crackle yeah. and all the rest of it and I think because I was heavily into um, Fantastic Four comics because they were kind of cosmic and you'd got Galactus and the Silver Surfer and all the rest of it so their stories were a little bit more grand and I was a bit of a space freak so the Fantastic Four stories appealed to me a lot more than the down-to-earth Spidey stories. Well, Interestingly say you focused quite a lot on the art but I think Stanley's writing
2: as well especially in that era before we moved into the editor-in-chief and didn't get a chance to write as much I think that story's always powerful Stan took those amazing illustrations and drawings and turned it into something cohesive and actually made sense in a
1: continuance kind of thing it's the language as well the way he writes yeah makes it direct yeah i also i'd also i like i like writers who write in a fashion that kind of i call it lyrical in a way that it trips off the tongue and you follow it really easily so kind of like one of the uh, writer that i admire hugely we lost again is terry pratchett who's Mm. you can just read those words just flow yeah, through I mean, and he's... reading Stan, reading the kind of old Stan yeah. Lee, that those lyrics just just ooze off the page, and the and the plus the illustrations, it's f- page flipping and um, stuff. One of the things I always struggled
2: with DC comics because they're so story heavy in comparison to Marvel, because I think they start story first in their style, and I think that's always been kind of Marvel's always been about. Drawing you in with the arts, but having a meaning behind the story, whereas DC's always been about creating a grand tale for something to be involved in. Yeah,
1: I think it's the the difference between them and their characters. Their characters are often gods or celestial beings from another planet or kind of billionaire playboys and stuff. And I think the thing that differentiates Marvel at that time is, is Stanley's picking the nerd or the frail doctor. Yeah. Or the weird scientists. I mean, and you know, kind of doing things to them as well. Like the Fantastic Four go through that process where their powers are kind of things they struggle with. Yeah, they don't embrace them straight away as being yeah. yes,
2: we are now heroes. Well, the first few Fantastic Four comics, they don't even have superhero outfits. They're just dressed normally, and it's yeah, and it's, it's it's the opposite of being superheroes. And I think that's one of the things that Stan brought a lot to the comics industry. It was actually bringing real characters in rather yeah. than just being, Batman has a hell of a lot of flaws, but that's never really touched on in his character. It's always, he's the Batman and Bruce Wayne's this superficial side yeah. of character. And it's done a lot more nowadays, but back then he was the first person to actually say, well, let's create a character everybody's supposed to hate. Let's create an alcoholic billionaire playboy who makes weapons and then only has this change of heart when his life gets rescued and he has a metal plate buckled onto his
1: mm. chest. Well, the thing with the Fantastic Four as well is that very, it is a family and there's there's characters within that group that everybody can identify with there's characters throughout the Marvel Universe that everybody can identify with and I think that's that's one of Stan's and the whole thing, the only reason that they
2: get created in the first place, because the most intelligent one of them, Mr. Fantastic who's supposed to be pretty much infallible and the genius of the Marvel Universe doesn't put enough shielding on the ship
1: makes a mistake, yeah that's, I think that's the th- the thing you see is, uh, and it, it's the, the ultimate quote that everybody will remember. So if everybody, any, anybody hears it, that the one from Spider-Man, which is the kind of with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And I think that's a through line. That goes through all of these characters that were being created in the yeah. Marvel line is that it's not to be taken lightly. These powers are given, yeah. but they're not given. You know, you're not supposed to abuse everything. them. Yeah. So, you well, they often create problems. more problems for each of yeah. the characters.
2: Well, look at the real world problems that Spider-Man has. He's trouble trying to keep a girlfriend. He's trouble trying to earn money and live as a freelance photographer. And it's this. None of this stops just because he's now got the powers of a spider. It's still he's in exactly the same place
1: he could yeah. be, and he could use his powers against. But you look at the difference in the, the tragedy of those characters, because he's, he hasn't got his parents, much yeah. the same way as um, Bruce Wayne. But also he loses his um, role model in Uncle Ben in a way that he's ultimately responsible for. Yeah, So it is that sense of he's always conflicted. You yeah. know, he goes through many iterations and he does quite a few times in those early Spider-Man comics, thinks about leaving the uniform behind and not being Spider-Man. Is it yeah. worth... The risk, and, and some, some terribly, terribly traumatic things happen to him in those those very, very early issues of, of Spider Man. Yeah, and it's in the case where you get searchers had
2: recently with a Thor uh, passing over to Jane, and it's kind of it's it's a mantle that, or it has benefits, but it has massive downsides at the same time. Yeah,
1: I mean Thor's an interesting character because even as a god, the Asgardian gods, he still originally then was was given the Donald Blake yeah persona. Yeah. To kind of humble him and make him realize what it is to be a human being, but I think that's 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 the thing about, that, that Stan's stories do is there's there's something in them that everybody can relate to. Yeah, there's there's something about it that everybody feels some sense of empathy with, and I think as as a publisher and a creator, that's one of the things I think Stan brought a lot to his books is that sense of empathy and understanding what it meant to be not just a young person but also. A human being.
2: Yeah. And shall we talk about Marvel's darker days in the 90s? Because <laughs> that, that whole 60s, 70s, 80s period was pretty much just one long, glorious. Yeah, I time mean, because
1: Stannard stopped being a writer Yeah, kind of in the early 70s and be, and was the kind of publishing figurehead. So he was kind of the. the did the letters the, page, the, pretty the much. Figurehead, like yeah, yeah. He was the kind of one everybody. And and all the books, that was the other thing that I always remember about the books, which I always used to love, was. Um, you had the opening splash page, yeah. which would often have the creators' credits in. But at the very top, there would be this very brief re-summing uh, up of that character, yeah. And then it would be Stanley presents, yeah, and as whatever. As you mentioned, it is. the Stanley presents, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like his
2: name is attached, to, well, as co-creator to pretty much. I'd say at least what the majority of Marvel's catalog at this time.
1: Yeah, a fair a fair proportion. I think yeah. a fair proportion. I think his brother as well, Larry. Um, yeah. Larry's quite quite a a, a hand in there and there there are quite a lot of other people that are involved in the Marvel thing and I think that's one of the things that is difficult people find separating Stan from Marvel very quite rigid. hard because yeah. it is presented in a way that it's kind of Marvel is Stan Lee and it's it's more than that it's, it's more complicated but yeah. that. I
2: mean you've got the one above all Jack Kirby yeah <laughs> again that's another thing we haven't really touched on he was one of the first person to put cameos of himself and his artists into the comic books yeah. quite a lot so you would see um, Jack and Stan appear in an issue occasionally yeah, the and real people, a lot of fourth wall breaking,
1: popping up through. because it all—it was all happening in the real world. This was the this was the thing they had. It's like these, are, this is happening in New York yeah. City, and Daredevil is behind you, and when you when you're not looking, Daredevil's swinging between the uh, the buildings, and Spider-Man's doing the rest. But I th- I think the other thing as well is that um, the Spider—I don't know if people are old enough to. There was a very very early. Spider-Man cartoon that used to go out, I think, on the BBC. 60s era. Yes, I think it was a 60s era yeah. one, but I saw it in the 70s. And again, that was kind of introduced with... The introduction and, 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 and outro was this, this incredible voice of this man who was like... So hearing Stan's voice, that was another thing that I'd never... Ha- you never encountered before is apart from actors in films but the idea of hearing the people that were writing your comics and hearing their voices because like authors and stuff people whose books that are read you never heard that. you did had no idea what these people sounded like but to have this this larger than life character t- character of stanley kind of the his voice matched his persona if you know what i mean he was kind of yeah. like his voice carried you could see what kind of a guy he was yeah and this um, was the whole thing with Excelsior signing off his little editorial
2: um, and yeah. true believers for Marvel fans. And that's, that became the nickname. And so, as we mentioned, in the 90s, he steps away from Marvel, becomes chairman emeritus, and kind of stops his regular duties so much. But um, the 90s was a bad time for Marvel. The verge of bankruptcy sold yeah. the rights to pretty much everything. Just to keep the doors open.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were coming off a period of where comics were starting to be accepted as a legitimate medium, um, having been kind of quite throwaway, disposable uh, kids' entertainment. Um, but in the kind of mid uh, '80s, we'd got things like Watchmen yeah. and The Dark Knight and stuff, which was kind of elevating or making people take notice of these characters. Um, so there was a bit of an explosion in the comics industry. Yeah, and we it was just oversaturation, and it was too many characters, too many books, yeah. too many publishers. There's lots um, of
2: speculation as well, especially around the death of Superman, which was people were buying comics more for. It uh, Became an investment,
1: yeah. People yeah. were buying things for investment, but again, I think Marvel in itself kind of just lost its way. Yeah, in terms of what kind of stories it was trying to tell, characters like the X Men were starting to become.
2: Well, it's when you got extreme in characters. This was like when Deadpool joins the gang, and it became that kind of. They went too far into this extreme over-the-topness, I think. Is yeah. Where too many it?
1: pouches was definitely one of the things for that.
2: <laughs> Lots of blood and gore turned up as well, which was never really a Marvel trade at this point.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, um, I think myself, I kind of came off mainstream comic books and were kind of going towards things like concrete and um, Grendel and stuff. So some of the indie yeah. stuff that was just telling slightly more interesting stories, mm-hmm. whereas the superhero stuff, I was just getting a little bit jaded with. Um, and again, the kind of the kind of writing was just, yeah, not kind of not More kind of telling. Out yeah, it wasn't know. wasn't quite as good. I mean, you got creators like Chris Claremont and stuff were starting to yeah. stop writing things like the X Men, but there were still good writers in amongst there. But it was just difficult to kind of just well, focus in on those um, yeah. individual stories. And I think Marvel struggled a little bit during that time because just the, just the sense of focus kind of went off a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean that pretty, pretty much where the movies were at the end of the 90s. We had the first X-Men film in 2000. We had Sam Raimi's Spider-Man come in 2002. So this is when cinema has started to learn about Stan a little bit more with his cameo king
1: status. We had more rats. <laughs> well, yeah. More rats for me is still the best Stan Lee cameo yeah. um, because it's the most genuine as it is but we'd we'd struggled up until that point because superheroes in in tv and film were were pretty badly served up to that point so we'd had some marvel characters we'd had the hulk tv series uh in the 70s we'd also had a a spider-man tv series in the 70s which was interesting because both of those characters did nothing like their comic book counterparts the hulk Mm -hmm. might get slightly annoyed and maybe kick a door down and spider-man might crawl around on the floor a little bit he didn't do any particular web slinging Uh, and then we had the world's worst thor which was basically a wrestler in a uh, furry um, body warmer, which was terrible. And I think we had Matt Murdock. There was a trial of the Hulk, which we think we had Matt Murdock in. So it was pretty bad. And then we had kind of the legendary uh, Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. (laughs) Uh, which, which I have was just seen because I think that is a rite of passage for any comics fan. You have to watch. I think you should. say, It's not actually. I, it's not it's that just been bad. Uploaded in full to YouTube, I believe. Yeah, I think. You, I think if you search hard enough, you can find it. It's, yeah. it's pretty bad. I think there was also a fairly ropey Captain America who had a motorcycle helmet with an A on the front, <laughs> which was pretty ropey as well. I think I saw that. But I think we we were pretty badly served for kind of superhero films at, for Marvel. I mean, DC were killing it. Yeah, uh, you know we'd had. You know, um, Donna's the, Superman and yeah. Burton's Batman so they were kind of showing the way you would mentioned the X-Men yep cartoon which is, is,
2: is the Fantastic Four 90's series
1: yeah there's a few there's a few of the cartoons and then they're, they're, they're okay again DC for a while was really leading the way in terms of how to present their characters on screen well, Batman the animated series is still an awesome classic it's still the greatest version of Batman committed to yeah. to film as far as I'm concerned but I think we got we had Blade uh, just prior yeah, to the X Men, which was which was great because that really kind of took and a out. lot of
2: people forget he was from a comic
1: book, and he's British. It's yeah. the other thing that uh, everybody forgets. So, Blade <laughs> is a, is a British superhero, which is yeah. kind of cool. And, but then, yeah, everything hit the the the, the high stakes when um, the X Men just exploded really yeah. and became huge, which
2: was pretty much around the same time that mal um, Stanley hopped over the fence and did his uh, Just imagine series for DC. <laughs> so you had Stan Lee writing on Aquaman, Batman, Catwoman, Crisis, Flash, Green Lantern, JLA, Robin, Sandman, Secret Falls and Origin, Shazam, Superman and Wonder Woman.
1: Yeah, I remember the Wonder Woman one.
2: Yeah. It wasn't the best writing, to be fair, but I don't <laughs> think that was Stan's fault, to be honest.
1: No, I think I think the thing that happened with that was those characters just don't fit. His, his style, his 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 style. They're, yeah. they're, that's why we have those Marvel characters and we have the DC characters. And I just think that they're not complementary. Well, they are complementary in teams, yeah. but they, I just don't think it fits Stan's style. Those characters are mm-hmm. slightly more aloof yeah. characters. They don't um, fit his
2: everyman persona. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think he struggled with
1: those. I remember reading one or two and kind of not being particularly blown away and kind of thinking, oh dear.
2: But this was a man who worked tirelessly he never really stopped from the age of 17 up and pretty much until his death he was still still attending cons quite regularly still signing still being available still interacting with the public and and i don't think stanley and stanley lever ever lived in the same world really no i don't think stanley lever pretty much existed post his return to marvel stanley became his complete and utter persona from start to finish every every time he was in public Callan, we've not really let you have a chat on this one. How have Marvel and Stanley's comics affected you personally?
0: I mean, obviously, like, I wasn't around for a lot of what we've sort of talked about now because I only grew up in the 90s. um, And I certainly wasn't of an age to be consuming comics at that time. Yeah. uh, So until, like, the early sort of 2000s, I didn't ever really sort of get a hold of it.
2: So your introductions mainly been the MCU movies and Spider Man movies and stuff like that.
0: Well yeah, and even some of like um like the original um Daredevil movie mm-hmm. and um the Electra the we had after that? We
2: don't talk about that film.
0: Well yes, I know, but it's every, every, you can't help where you yeah. get your introductions from. Um but no, and sort of that and especially like um some of the animated TV series as well. Um, so another, I can't remember what the name of it was. There was Spider Man One. Um, there's been early several Spider Man. It might have ones. been a replay.
1: Yeah, there's been there's been quite a few different versions of Spider Man. I
2: think it was amazing it was the seventies
1: one. If I think well, you have got the the other one that I remember quite vividly is Spider Man and his amazing super friends, <laughs> which is basically Spider Man, Iceman, and. Um, can't remember the name of the young lady. She was, so remember
2: the Fantastic Four series? They swapped out the human, the, the torch Human Torch for, for Herbie the robot. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I can't remember. Firestorm? It, no, it wasn't Firestorm. I can't remember the name of the young lady, but um, they lived in an apartment together, which was quite interesting. Um, and then there was another. There was a kind of late '90s Spider-Man one, which kind of had a lot of the villains in, and it did quite that did quite good then I remember there was there was a kind of CGI MTV Spider-Man, which I quite liked. didn't run for very long, but was, mm-hmm. it was, I, was, I quite liked that one. That was quite good. Some of the problems with those kind of earlier versions of the films is the characters were living in isolation. Yeah. So the kind of Raimi Spider-Man, it's, there's only Spider-Man. The Daredevil, there's only Daredevil. And I think that's part of what made the Marvel Universe work for me, that was it, that they were twice. all there. Yeah. And I think it's why when... Um, Spider-Man became part of the MCU and you had Spider-Man Homecoming, that that sword was this idea of Peter Parker emulating his heroes in awe of Tony Stark or Captain America or whatever it is. And I think that's interaction between the characters is what makes them. So
0: that's interesting to me because obviously when I was growing up it was these sort of... They were singulated out and they existed in their sort of own shows but there was no crossover there. So to find out that actually these were supposed to be part of like this bigger universe in which they all sort of like connected was just insane. Well I think this is why
2: the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done so well because you've got a lot of backstory you have a lot of crossover with these characters you've got a lot of comics written by Stan and the the other creators to go back to and use as reference material whereas stuff like the DC stuff, even the Justice League wasn't don't think their stories ever gelled well I mean Batman works best alone
1: Yeah the, the DC stuff is tricky as well because the Justice League is an update of the Justice Society yeah, which featured many characters of a similar style. So there's Green Lanterns on both. Yeah. There's flashes on both, and you've got Green. You know, you've got characters that repeat. Where the Avengers form in a more organic way. Yeah. In terms of its Loki messing around um, yeah. with the Hulk which is great because the whole thing is brought back around when we get the kind of Avengers Assemble movie and, and the influence of that. So the kind of Avengers come together to kind of prevent the Hulk going kind of off. And you kind of I think Wasp is one of the original members of the yeah. the Avengers at that point as well. But it's, it's the, all this interrelation between all these characters. And I think the thing that didn't really uh, work for me when they were isolated is, why is there 64 different villains? Because yeah. surely they'd all just go we will just there's any Spider-Man that's fine.
2: Well, that's another thing we've not really touched on. Stanley knows how to write a supervillain. Doctor Definitely. Doom, which is probably his best and original supervillain here. Well, here we have a backstory which actually makes you kind of like Doctor Doom in a really odd way. Even though there's this is megalomaniac supervillain, in his head he's right, and you can kind of see his point of view, which has come straight full circle round to stuff like Thanos now, and you can see those. Germs of Stanley writing a relatable supervillain?
1: Sympathetic is the is the key word there. Yeah. There's things in all of these characters that you are sympathetic towards. There's there's things in those characters. They've they've, they've diverged at a certain point. Things have happened yeah. to them and they've followed a different path. So characters yeah. like the Sandman.
2: Green Goblin. Yeah. And all these characters have always got there is a trigger, there's an element which has snapped and that's where they've transformed and I think that's, again, part of Stan's writing is you have this feeling that it could have gone either way and if they hadn't become a supervillain and this thing hadn't happened to them, they'd be a normal person or they might have been a superhero at some
1: point. Well, you've got it with people like Magneto. Yeah. And I think in hindsight now, it's easier for people to understand where that's going because in the film it's presented very sympathetically that Magneto has gone through some traumatic events. Yeah. But that's in there amongst that, the X-Men stuff of Magneto's desire... Yeah, to um, have Homo Superior take yeah. over the world, while the X Men are looking to do um, integration. Yeah, w- living together. Yeah, but you can understand why Magneto has a certain worldview because of what what's happened to him yeah. and how how he's been treated as a, as a separate person. Yeah. Which is again great because, it's like you were saying, the analogy of kind of the civil rights thing is that idea of if you've been persecuted your entire life. You're not going to feel like you can go. Well, we can all get along now. There yeah. are going to be elements of why, why should yeah. we? Why should we share when you weren't prepared to before?
2: And that's the thing, Professor X. Even though he's got the best of intentions, ends up creating one of the biggest supervillains ever in the Mar- in Marvel with Phoenix. So that's him trying to do right and actually doing kind of the wrong thing by trying yeah. to do
1: right. Yeah, it's it's it, there's so much in that. I mean, you know, we we're talking now about you know a good 50, 60 years of, of these stories. Yeah. And I think, although they're for a modern audience to reread those early um, uh, Amazing Fantasy, X-Men, Captain America, Fantastic Four books, yeah. I think they still hold up as parables and stories. Yeah. The language is possibly a little... Um, dated. Dated. Uh, but I think the art still looks phenomenal. I mean, Steve Ditko's art still to this day looks futuristic. Oh yeah, that,
2: and that's an achievement to be fifty years.
1: Yeah, or his um, Doctor Strange stuff. Yeah, is still kind of still off the scale, and it's almost directly referenced in the, in, in the films. Yeah, and that's how that's how influential that kind of stuff is. But I think the the meaning and the pathos behind those stories still packs a very strong emotional punch. and we, You don't stray too far away from them mm-hmm. in in these movies designed no. for a 21st century audience. Yeah. The, the, the core...
2: Even the costume designs are pretty yeah. much where they were. I mean, Captain America riffs on that in the first film where he's got pretty much Captain America issue one outfit yeah. on. But even if you look at Ditko's drawings for Spider-Man, that outfit has not really changed much. We've had multiple variations on it. But to me, the Spider-Man outfit is always going to be that classic red and blue that you see from day one.
1: It's a a genius design. Yeah. Simplicity itself. And um, I think
2: that's the other reason the X-Men films never really worked. is because they never had that classic tieback.
1: Well, I think it was that fear of embracing the comic book elements of it. Yeah. Um, It's like, those costumes will never work on screen. (laughs) So we're going to dress them in black leather. Yeah. uh, (laughs) And then kind of Marvel come along later and go... No, they do actually work because they've been well-designed. Yeah. They're, they're great costumes. But I, I do like that story. I think I, if you ever watch any videos of Stan Online, the idea of coming up for the name of Spider-Man and basically went, Fly Man doesn't work. Insect Man doesn't work. Basically just just throwing yeah. names out and went, Spider-Man. Spider-Man sounds good. And basically creating a character out of a name Yeah, um, I mean, is genius.
2: I looked back at Spider-Man as he won. And even then, he's confused about putting the hyphen in because it changes page to page. One page it's Spider-Man, the other page it's just yeah. Spider-Man as one. Word. I think
1: I think as well that some of that is, a, is a, a DC Marvel thing. The majority of DC characters won't have the hyphen in, yeah. But Marvel will have the hyphen. It's yeah. Ant-Man man. Yeah. or Spider-Man, yes. uh, which I think is is quite funny. There's I mean, there's always been a friendly rivalry between the. The yeah. two, I think, it, in most of the Marvel books, if Stan was talking about DC, they'd be referred to as distinguished competition. <laughs> well, um, which didn't is quite cool. Jack
2: Kirby like parody him in a few Batman issues? I think when he swapped sides.
1: Uh, yeah, I think I think it's was a, a good. But you know, th- all of this leads to wonderful things when when Jack went to. Um, DC and create things like the um the fourth world and the new yeah. gods and all that kind of stuff. You think this is marvellous kind of um stuff. But it just it just reminds you I mean it reminds me so vividly of kind of um mid seventies afternoons in the summer, mm-hmm. coming back from the, the, the local news agency with perhaps a a very ropey copy of um Justice League, but yeah. three or four black and white reprints of um Marvel books. And even later on when I was reading weekly ones where they chopped up stuff. So things like um, uh, Star-Lord, the the original Star-Lord and stuff. So amazing fantasy stories and a lot of the kind of earlier Steve Ditko, um, just short, kind of, they were like little um, Twilight Zones or Outer Limits stories that Marvel were pushing out. And all of these things were just fantastic. I mean, we've not really touched much on his editing side,
2: uh, the editorial side. mentioned about the bullpen, but... I think he was one of those editors who was... Mainly mainly probably because of his own personal background, where he had things happen. Like, as I said, he was 18 and left in charge of all timely timely publications, comics at the time. I think he had to rely on people around him to help him make the right choice, but I think he carried that through over his entire career of allowing these artists to be experimental and stuff like that, because I can't, can't, couldn't have imagined... Steve Ditko started his career at DC. Because yeah, it just wouldn't be the same. No, and I think that was one of the key things of Stan was he allowed people to be creative, but it was always the same message of
1: you're writing these people to be relatable rather than infallible. Oh, that's the whole thing about um, Stan's and Marvel's characters is that relatability to them that yeah. they're not they're they're flawed humans. The majority of them are flawed humans, yeah, and they're not, um, they're not the ideal archetypes that were being presented elsewhere. Yeah, they're kind of the from the very more, the more traditional sense of a hero in the kind of Greek myth type stuff. Yeah, um, it was pulling that back into a kind of sense of um, m- making it relatable yeah. to that that impressionable young person that was reading comics at that time. Yeah.
2: I think, Callum, have we convinced you? You should go back and read some of these early Marvel stories.
1: I
0: mean, there is a lot to get through. So, like, what do you, like, both of you, would recommend in terms of like highlights? In terms of, okay, well, this is a good place to start with it, because obviously, if you were to go back and go to, the like, read from the start, yeah, that's I'd, quite a lot.
2: I'd probably suggest the early run of Fantastic Four and probably the first hundred issues of Spider Man. I know it's quite a lot to get through, but I think that original Spider-Man run really is Stan to achieve his message of, as we mentioned earlier, great power comes great responsibility.
1: Yeah. I think you're in luck at the moment as well, because having, having unfortunately, the passing of Stan remind us about those, those titles. His nostalgia have put together um, some of the reprints, which are part of the Marvel Epic Collection. So they've gathered together Hulk... X-Men, Fantastic Four. I'm not sure if they've done a Spider-Man one yet. Um, Spider-Man, definitely. I think there's an awful lot in those early Spider-Man issues that are just phenomenal. There is some incredible art in Mm -hmm. those. There are some great moments of um, internal conflict. There's a a classic uh, issue uh, where Spider-Man's trapped. Yeah. Uh, and he kind of you, all these thoughts go through his head, uh, and then there's, there's the other well, they, classic issue they, of Spider-Man No More. Yeah, well, that issue um,
2: you're referring to is pretty much where that scene in Homecoming comes from.
1: I oh think. yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and you've got all the stuff that goes on with uh, Gwen Stacy and all that kind of stuff. So I think this, the early Spider-Man stuff is is phenomenal stuff. Yeah, I, I'd kind of say the um, the early X-Men stuff is really interesting as yes, well. Definitely. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Obviously, there's Certain elements of it, which are of the time, so the kind of I think when they first introduce Jean Grey, all the boys are falling all over themselves to see these uh, cute uh, redhead who's just joined Professor Xavier's school. I think that pretty much refers back to their fifties comics runs, like Millie the Model and stuff like that. Um, So, so but but they're introducing things like um, the Stranger and uh, the. Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and yeah. Magneto and all of that. So the X-Men yeah. stuff is really strong. Um, and the Hulk as well. I think the early Hulk stuff is really interesting um, because it's this man, this monster, is kind of the m- mantra yeah. that goes through that. And I think... Um, well, it's, that was pretty much, can a monster be good? Yeah. And I think that storyline. And I think, I think what's, what's, what's really good at the moment is that the current Al Ewing uh, run on the immortal Hulk. Yeah. Is a very well for me feels a very distinct throwback to those kind of early um, Hulk yeah. books, um, which are really good. So I think that's um, the you know, the Hulk X Men. Um, yeah, I think the Hulk X Men Spider Man is probably a classic, but yeah, Fantastic, then the Four. Fantastic Four is great, uh, particularly if you can get to the. Uh, yeah. There's a, a wonderful, wonderful story of the Scrolls in the second issue. Yeah, and it has got one of the greatest. Endings to a comic um, purely because you just go, did they really do that? And you're forever thinking about what happened to them. Um, <laughs> I won't spoil it for you. Yeah. But um, the, the, the the schools can change shape into whatever it is. So yeah. that they the, the Fantastic Four come up with a rather ingenious way <laughs> of dealing with that problem at the very end of the issue, which is really good. But then you get the introduction of the Silver Surfer. You've got Galactus. Yeah. Um oh, I mean these have all been MCU staples
2: for quite a long oh, time now. Yeah.
1: Um but the but the, the, the fantastic four yeah just yeah you're gonna be stuck because you just gonna have to well, read mean, them all.
2: The only one we haven't really mentioned from that early run is probably Thor and maybe Doctor Strange, but Doctor Strange just needs to be looked up for Steve Dicko's art. Yeah, the
1: the Doctor Strange stuff is pretty psychedelic. Yeah. It's kinda it's kind of cool. Um the Thor stuff again as well is um, I think it's probably the weakest one of that silver age
2: period. Yeah. Unless you're really into your like mythology kind of thing and how it riffs on it.
1: Yeah. I think it's yeah, I think it's a little bit of the, it's, it's probably the weakest of them uh in terms of the kind of stories they were telling. Yeah. It's a and it I think you'd struggle with its very shakespearean way of Writing Thor because yes. it's all doth this and doth that. It's very stuff. Kenneth Branagh, which yeah. came across in the first film, it's, not it, too well. It's it's very it's very kind of heavily written in terms of the yes. kind of um, uh, Asgardian god thing. But I mean, that's one of my favourite lines from the
2: uh, the first Avengers movie when you got Tony Stark and t- Thor throwing down, and he goes, "Doth your mother know he's wearing her dress?" <laughs> and that kind of call back then to that kind of. Ridiculousness of that
1: kind of full-on Shakespearean play. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think if I was having having to say one, I'd say I'd say Spider-Man. (laughs) Definitely. Do you think I'd say
2: Spider-Man for Stanley's writing? Mm. It depends if you're going to justify art over the writing. But I think Stanley is where. Stanley's writing shone a lot more in Spider-Man's character, where you have this relatable everyman who's flung into a situation where he doesn't quite understand it, and then you have this whole thing about how responsibility comes.
1: Yeah, yeah, everything comes with a you, downside. You wonder sometimes how autobiographical Spider-Man is a character as, as a character yeah. is, yeah, um, because Stanley's. Stanley's the persona we see is a very larger than life yeah. um, guy and I kind of wonder whether you know some of his does that call um, back to Peter Parker anxiety. being Stanley Lieber and um, Spider-Man
2: yeah so I Stanley. wonder because wonder I
1: mean, yeah. there's got to be some kind of um, autobiographical elements in some of these characters because yeah. they, they are so relatable um, but that's got to be coming from somewhere Yeah, um, which is really good but yeah Spider, Sp- I think Spider-Man or Fantastic Four are mm-hmm. uh, a great place is to kind of go
2: right to uh wrap this
1: up i think what's the best lesson that stan ever taught you Keith um i think stan was all one for acceptance and tolerance uh and just being you know part of the human race i think that was his, that was his 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 yeah. thing of like i think he's I, i'm probably paraphrasing everything but his idea of that guy you see over there is your brother. That woman you see over there is your sister. And yeah. you're all part of the same family. Yeah. And I think that was his um, thing for me, as to kind of not just – not to judge people too harshly and yeah. to kind of be be tolerant. Sometimes things will go wrong. Sometimes things won't be perfect. But to um, kind of try at
2: your best. And I think that's another thing that was – as we mentioned with his supervillains, is people – when they are angry and upset and lashing out, yeah. there is usually a reason behind it, and understanding the reason will help you understand the person a lot more. Callum, what would be your one thing that you've learnt from Marvel and Stanley's
0: words? I mean I, I mean, I don't think I can put what either of you said better than what you than how you've said it just now, but I think with regards to what we are talking about earlier, with how Anybody is capable of being a hero. Anybody's capable of being a villain. And how you can sort of... How it might be difficult, but choosing to do the right thing. Yeah. And sort of... I don't know. I think... Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think you're almost hitting it there on the head, is that... Mm. Even without superpowers, people can be heroes. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that in the in the comics, is that... Um, at pivotal moments in history as well, the, the the heroes will be supporting the kind of firemen or wh- yeah. whoever it is. And I think the, the idea of um, pa- it's not powers that make you a hero.
2: No. And that was going to be my finishing comments, basically, was the the lesson I took to heart most from any kind of thing that Stan wrote was one man can make a difference. Be it good or bad, you can yeah. still make a difference in this world. And it usually does turn down to a single pivotal person in quite a lot of situations who've decided, no, I will stand up against that. Yeah. And a lot of the Marvel comics actually do that. It's usually somebody, an every per, everyday normal person standing up, which, again, stops things happening. And it's usually what inspires the superhero to go on and do things. I mean, it was actually done a little bit in. The, I've said mentioned the first Avengers movie where you have Loki in Germany, yeah, and you have that whole battle scene, and he gets everybody to kneel in front of him, and one man doesn't kneel, and that whole dialogue sums up Stan's relationship with his audience. Of it empowers people quite a lot. I think that's what Marvel Comics did. They empowered people to say, "You can stand up. You can make a change. You yourself." Don't need superpowers. You can do something which will make the world a better
1: place. Yeah, I think the fact that these comics were coming out at a time in history, particularly in America, when there was such a shift in um, kind of yeah. civil rights and all the rest of it, and I think I think the, the kind of influence of these uh, immigrants. Uh, Who who have ended up in America because of what's happened in Europe in the Second World War? Yeah, and the idea of these guys, and again with um, the guys who invented Superman. Yeah, it feeds into those characters the the sense of what's happened in the world and what where the world needs to go, and that's that that shining light. These heroes are always the, the the this is the humanity's best. Yeah, and this is what we need to do, and that. That doesn't need to be an alien from another planet. That can be the guy from Hell's Kitchen who is standing up against injustice yeah. and striving for a better world. And I think that's one of the things that that, that Stan and his co-creators were, yeah. were were doing and and talking about and bringing to the the kind of general uh, audiences that were that were. And I wonder how many people that were reading Marvel comics at that time have gone on to become proactive in that kind of yeah. Uh, scene, that kind of, um, you know, standing up for the good in the world. I mean, he was one of the
2: first people who pretty much did the whole process, you thing the thing that comics are not just for children, but they are very good life lessons for a lot of children. I mean, he's had a few detractors, unfortunately, since his past, and he said, well, why are we revering this man who wrote kiddie books? And it's kind of like, well, that's not the whole point over here, he's setting moral guidelines for people. He's he's showing the dark side of the world at the same time, especially as we mentioned the stuff against the ACA, where he's like, if you show the dark side of what can happen and what goes wrong, these can really be mm. lessons on how to avoid
1: it or how to yeah. say no, how to how to how to be a better person. Yeah, and I think when you are talking about detractors who are doing that stuff, of, oh, it's just for kids. Yeah. Who are the people that need to be learning the best lessons? At what yeah. what time in your life do you need to know what's good or mm-hmm. how to be good or how to react to other people? Is that when you're in your formative years, yeah. or when you're fifty? Yeah, because I think when you're fifty, it's too late.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to support Geeky Brummy, you can help support us at kofi. That's k-o-hyphen-f-i. dot com slash geeky brummy. That's brummy with an i-e. Thanks for listening. Your support would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.